This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. long-ago criminal records, right? They've paid their debt to society. Now, let's make that very clear. They've gone through the process. They did their time. They're done. But when they re-enter society, there's still barriers to housing and jobs. I say no more. Today, we're here today to correct that injustice by signing into law the Clean Slate Act. That was Governor Kathy Hochul yesterday signing legislation that could make as many as 2 million people eligible to have their criminal records sealed. Um, In doing so, and obviously I'm very interested in New York, but, you know, doing a national show and having listeners in Alaska and Tennessee and Maryland, why are we talking about this? Well, New York is now one of a dozen states that have enacted such laws, which are aimed at interrupting the cycle of recidivism by enabling formerly incarcerated people access to jobs and housing. Governor Hochul. My number one job as the New York State governor is to keep people safe. And I believe that the best anti-crime tool we have is a job. When people have steady work, they're less likely to commit crimes and less likely to be homeless. Everything she says there is absolutely correct. There are very few people on the radio that are more supportive of people that have been to prison than me. If you look at my social group, my group group of friends, most of my friends that are interesting are people that have served time in prison. It's just the way it is. And I not only hate the way that, by and large, people are treated in prison, but I hate the way that prisoners are stigmatized for all the reasons that Kathy Hochul has stated. So you would think... She signed this law that is going to bring about a sweeping expansion of the sealing of certain criminal records after a prescribed period of time following the completion of a wrongdoer sentence. You would think that I would be all for this. And in concept, I kind of am. 
However, I, you know, because I do think if you've done your time and stayed out of trouble, you should be able to get a good job and housing and lead a good life. I don't think I think when you're sentenced to 15 years in prison, 20 years in prison, that should be your sentence. I don't think you should carry around with you a mark of Cain. However, I was spending a lot of time talking about this with my wife yesterday. And if you do a background check on someone that you're hiring for, say, caring for children, you should be able to know if they committed a crime that you're uncomfortable with. And I, I maybe, again, being a father, I think about this a bit differently. But let's say a preschool teacher, you know, my son's going to be in preschool next year. Let's say a preschool teacher had been convicted of kidnapping 15 years ago. Wouldn't you want to know that? I would. Um, in the my reading of the news coverage on this is that the most serious crimes, including sex crimes, murder, and most other Class A felonies, will not be eligible for automatic sealing. That's good. But other classes of felonies, including a lot of violent ones, are Class B violent felonies. Assault, arson, criminal possession of a weapon, gang assault, kidnapping. Those are all Class B felonies that will be eligible to be sealed here. And it's for that reason that while I'm very sympathetic to the plight of someone that's been in prison, I don't think this is a good idea for New York or the dozen other states that are looking at this. Additionally, I was uh, meeting with my friend Pat Russo yesterday. I don't know if he wants me to mention his name, but he's an attorney, a very well-thought-out guy. And he brought up another issue that I had not considered, which is the issue of employer indemnification. What happens if I hire someone, not that I have the ability to hire anyone, but let's say I hired someone to be um, a, a telephone talent coordinator or a radio producer, and they had been guilty of arson, and then they start a fire at the radio station because we didn't know. We didn't know he was an arsonist. Is the state of New York going to indemnify me and pay my newly higher insurance premiums? They're not. No. So I, it kills me to do it because I'm Mr. Rehabilitation. I'm Mr. Pay your debt to society and move on with your life. But I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think it's a good idea for New York or any other state. I love the idea of a clean slate in principle, but what I love even more is knowing information about someone. And if they've committed a serious crime, and look, um, a Class B violent felony, assault, arson, criminal possession of a weapon, these are serious crimes. And as an employer, I want to know about it. And if I'm renting, look, my mother has a two-family house. She rents the apartment to, you know, a tenant, and that's been the case my whole life. I want my mother to know whether or not someone she's considering for an apartment has been convicted of assault. What were the circumstances? Doesn't mean you don't rent to that person. It means you ask about it.
800-848-9222 if you have a comment or a question or a thought. 800-848-9222 on the Clean Slate Act. We're going to talk with Mark Shaw in about five minutes on the uh, JFK assassination. We're just a few days away from the 60th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. Mark Shaw has some new information he's going to share with us. Meantime, uh, Jay in Queens, what's your view on the Clean Slate Act? Well, I, well, my okay, I'll tell you my view about it. I agree with you about giving people a second chance, but the Clean Slate Act shouldn't apply to any violent offenders, period. It should only apply to nonviolent offenders, because a violent offender can be very dangerous and could kill people. And even if it's a Class B felony, people who do that could escalate to murder and rape sometimes. I tend to agree with you. I mean, what about, say, uh, stock fraud or, or theft? I mean, would you want to hire someone that had a conviction for for stock fraud or theft to be your controller? Shouldn't you have a right to know about that as well? Yeah, I agree with that. We should. And also, I feel that the law should apply differently to people who are repeat offenders. People who have a history of being repeat offenders or repeat multiple offenders should have a longer period to wait, you know. Yeah, and and thanks, Jay. I appreciate the call. I don't think that repeat offenders would be eligible to have their record sealed here. As I understand it, it would uh, just be people that have had their conviction and then kept their nose clean for for uh, years and you know uh, i can't say i've poured over this legislation with the kind of talmudic scholarship that others have but based on my reading of the media reports on this legislation i don't think it's um i don't think it's a good idea i think this is potentially a recipe for disaster 800-848-9222 you can also email me at frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com that's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com michael is in manhattan hi michael how are you frank and i'm being quite frank um i think let's hire these ex-felons etc etc up in the new york state governor's mansion let them work there uh let them work in the legislature up there let them work in her husband's newfound gold mine the buffalo Bills <laughs> stadium My- i think that would be a wonderful thing yeah michael I-, I get exactly the point that you're trying to make and the level of sarcasm that you're trying to make it with however um i think the fact that they wouldn't even know if these people had a criminal record because they're going to seal them, that's exactly the point here. They couldn't hire these people if they wanted to because they're not going to know. All right. Those of you that are holding, we're going to get to you. we got Mark Shaw standing by straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We are just a few days away from the 60th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And a few things are abundantly clear looking back at this uh, horrible tragedy six decades later. One, it's that people are still interested in it. And two, it's that the majority of people, according to public opinion polls, do not buy the official report of the Warren Commission, a man who has caused me to think about this case more than anyone else over the course of the last six or seven years has been Mark Shaw. He's written four brilliant books about this. He's written books about other subjects, but the four books of what I'll call the uh, Kilgallen series are an absolute must read. The Reporter Who Knew Too Much, Fighting for Justice, Collateral collateral Damage, and Denial of Justice. And it's about a lot more than just the John F. Kennedy assassination. It's about the mysterious death of Dorothy Kilgallen. It's about the death of Marilyn Monroe. It's about the death of Lee Harvey Oswald. It's about the death of Robert F. Kennedy. There's a ton in there, and he is showing absolutely no signs of slowing down because he has just done some reporting that totally calls into question the final conclusion of the Warren Commission, which is that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the program New York Times bestselling author and a recovering attorney, the one and only Mark Shaw. Mark, it's great to talk to you. I like that. Recovering attorney. Boy, that's for sure, isn't it? A former attorney, recovering. I always put that with attorneys so that people will really think about believing me, you know, because most people don't believe lawyers anymore. So, but thank you for that nice introduction. I appreciate it. It may it may seem to your listeners like I can't hold a job because I I've you know written all these books and then I did a bunch of stuff with the criminal defense attorney and did network coverage for some of the uh, famous trials like O.J. and Kobe and and uh, Mike Tyson and all that and you know who is this guy because he keeps seems to keep uh, moving from occupation to occupation but the last few years of course. Uh, I dove into the, the assassination and, as you talked about, uh, the life and times and the death of uh, of Dorothy Kilgallen. Mark, do you, obviously what you're doing now, I'm sure, is very rewarding and uh, it's certainly very interesting. I'm curious, though, do you miss practicing law at all? I do. I do. And it's, it's interesting because um, I, I never had any idea that uh, all of this would happen to me. I'm so blessed, Frank. I've had a very, very interesting uh, life. I uh, I grew up in Indiana and then went to Purdue University, and if you can imagine, uh, almost flunked out of there uh, during my freshman year, the same year that I learned about the JFK assassination, uh, 1963. And, um, you know, uh, I just never was a very good student or anything else like that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, once I graduated, I didn't know what to do, the, with, you know, what the hell to do with myself, so I became a bartender in Chicago. And uh, then uh, women would, uh, guys would come in, and they'd be talking to the women in there, and they'd impress them by saying, "I'm going to law school." 
So I thought, well, maybe I can get into law school. So I did. And then I sent, uh, spent several years as a, uh, a criminal defense attorney for high-profile murder cases. Got into the network business and everything. And then uh, I covered uh, the Mike Tyson trial. And that's the first case that I ever really reported for the networks. And then I wrote my first book about it. And so it's been quite a journey in terms of where I'm going. But um, you know, I'm an under, uh, I'm an overachiever, and I always like to to you know be an inspiration for people because uh, you know you can do anything you want to in life if you work hard enough at it and you decide that that you know you're you're making a difference. And somehow or another, I became a historian through all of this. And um, the, the biggest thing though I miss is practicing law. But I'll tell you what I have as an alternative. What I missed about practicing law was giving, you know, learning about the evidence, researching, all that. I do that with what I do now. I uh, would um, uh, do uh, opening statements and final arguments at trials. I do that now with the opening of the book and, mm. and the final part of the book. And the other thing is interesting. Um, I never had any training in, um, in, uh, in writing. I never had any of those workshops that people go to Iowa for and all that other but here's how I learned to write I, by talking to juries. Hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm very blessed when people say, Mark, your books are so easily read. And I think to myself, well, uh, they're, good organi- they're organized well and all that. That's what I used to do with the juries, talk to the jurors about the evidence and so on and so forth. And, of course, since I'm from an all, a, a small town back in Indiana, I don't have a great vocabulary. So I can really, you know, I, I tell people who want to write books that a book is like having a conversation with the reader, but you're not there. And so there's some similarities there, and I appreciate your asking me that question. So I kind of get my, my uh, you know, what I really enjoyed and a great deal about practicing law uh, from writing my books. Well, I, I can certainly understand that, and uh, that makes a lot of sense. As I alluded to when I was introducing you, the American people do not and have never, over the course of the last 59 years or so, believed the final report of the Warren Commission. What may come as a bit of, a bit of a surprise to some people is something that you've sort of discovered here, yeah. which is that even within Warren Commission circles, their final conclusion was somewhat controversial. Fill us in here, uh, Mark. What have you discovered? Well, I'll tell you what. When I, when I was in a, a class in my freshman year at Purdue and JFK was killed, I cried like everybody else. But then, you know, I, I didn't pay too much attention to what was going on because, you know, uh, it wasn't too long after that. Let's see, it's September of 64, so we're talking not even a year after the assassination the Warren Commission, you know, uh, publicized its final report. So I bought it like everybody else did. You know, this is what an honorable, uh, you know, I have a photograph of the Warren Commission right in front of me, and you've got LBJ, and you've got J. Edgar Hoover, and you've got, you know, all of these individuals, Earl Warren, the, the Chief Justice Supreme Court, and they've done all this investigation, and they've looked into all these witnesses and everything, and they're telling us it was Oswald alone. So I bought all that, and and I think uh, you're, you're saying now I think it's something we're around eighty percent of the people now that don't believe a great deal in the Warren Commission verdict. But back then they did, and through the years they did, and all, and the books that came out about Oswald alone and all of that. So you know, it was interesting for me because I've done all this research uh, into the JFK assassination, and you know that my kind of spiritual guide has been this woman, uh, Dorothy Kilgallen. 
And uh, for your audience that doesn't know, you know, although most people remember her uh, from the uh, quiz show, What's My Line, which was on CBS for 10 years. It was a quiz show that gave uh, guests unusual occupations. But um, it was interesting because I never knew anything about her either until I uh, interviewed uh, some people who knew, knew Melvin Belli, who was Jack Ruby's lawyer, and they said that, well, Belli knew Dorothy Kilgallen. And I said, well, how'd that happen? And they said, well, she was at the, uh, she investigated the JFK assassination. So it was just an interesting situation where I kept finding this clue and another clue and all of that. And um, uh, But I'm going to apologize just a little bit to your audience and to you because there's some things that I really missed with my research. Uh, I had gone back and, and thought about the, the Warren Commission, but I never really investigated, like I, investigated it like I should have because I really believe that they probably got it right. But when I started looking into it in Dorothy Kilgallen's eyes, I found out that uh, she was a close friend of JFK's. Uh, he used to come to her home in in, uh, in in New York City. They called her the most powerful female voice in America, the New York Post did. But he used to come there. They were friends uh, and all of that. And uh, they got to know each other really well. And the, uh, the turning point for her, uh, I think your audience will find it interesting, as you remember, was that uh, he invited her to the White House at one particular point, and, and he could, she could bring her young uh, son Kerry, and he she did that, and Pierre Salinger set it up for JFK to meet little Kerry in the library, and JFK came in and made a big fuss over over Kerry and the letters he'd brought from the third grade class. He gave him a PT 109 pen and all that kind of stuff, and so uh, you know Dorothy was you know he she she really admired. John F. Kennedy, as as we should for many things that he did on this 60th anniversary, the Cuban Missile Crisis, civil rights, trying, maybe he would have gotten us out of Vietnam, all that. So she had a lot of admiration for him, but when he was killed, uh, she she was just devastated. And the first column she ever wrote about the JFK assassination was, uh, what I remember is a tall man stooping over a little boy, admiring the letters he brought from his third grade class. This is the man who was assassinated in Dallas. And then when she saw Jack Ruby shoot Lee Harvey Oswald, that perked up her ears and she decided, I'm going to look into this. So what did she do? She went to Dallas. Now there's all these experts out there who have written about the assassination and researched it and done everything else, uh, but they weren't there in Dallas. I wasn't there in Dallas. You weren't there in Dallas. So we don't have a first-hand uh, a knowledge of what's of, of what happened there, but Dorothy did. First thing she did was talk to the Dallas police chief, her total, who told her when the shots rang out in Dealey Plaza, uh, he told his officers to go to the overpass. So she didn't believe all this stuff about the book depository and everything else. And and she she would then go to Dealey Plaza and report. And then she did the most important thing, and none of us and none of the experts that I've ever heard from have done this. She was at the Ruby trial, the Jack Ruby trial, charged with murdering Lee Harvey Oswald. And when she sat in the front row, she started hearing all this evidence. Uh, you know, Ruby just said he would he accidentally ended, ended up in the, in the basement uh, when, Ruby, when Oswald was being transferred. She heard evidence that he told people he would be there. The police would help him get into the to the basement, that he'd make like a reporter, all of that. And Dorothy later in a column proved through, through some of her, um, uh, her um, 
entertainment friends that they uh, they had played at uh, Jack Ruby's Carousel Club. So she's listening to all this, and then the biggest break came. Uh, Melvin Belli's uh, associate lawyer, uh, Joe Tonahill, motioned her over. She had already made contact with Ruby a couple times. Later, she would find out that Ruby used to watch. They used to watch uh, What's My Line at the Carousel Club. So Tonahill said, Dor- uh, Dorothy, uh, uh, Jack Ruby wants to talk to you. So behind the railing between the spectators and the uh, lawyer's counsel's table, she talked to him for about 10 minutes. Now, uh, most of your audience is saying, okay, Mark, you're going to really give us a breakthrough here and tell us what Ruby told her. Well, we can't know that, and I'll explain why. We don't know what he told her, but I can tell you what was going on there. So anyway, she kept investigating. She kept writing all these these uh, uh, columns, the Oswald file must not close, and Lyndon Johnson, come on, the American public need us, uh, you know, to uh, know the truth and all of that. And I'm getting then, of course, to the Warren Commission, but I want to explain, if I may, exactly how that came up. Please. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover uh, was, was worried, and I've been able to prove this through eyewitnesses, was worried that he and the FBI would be held responsible for JFK's death. They should have stopped it. They should have known who was going to do it, all of that. And so he said to himself, I've got to go to, excuse me, I've got to go into protect mold. The first thing that he did was he shouted Oswald alone, Oswald alone to the universe, and people bought that. Then he took the files of the Dallas Police Department and confiscated them and sent them to the bureau in New York City so they could do the investigation from there. The worst one, and this is why JFK was never given the justice he deserved when he died, just as Dorothy Kilgallen wasn't, as you, as you know, and Marilyn Monroe wasn't, that they're all connected, those cases, in Collateral Damage, one of my books. Um, he, he, he had the body. He basically stole the body and sent it uh, to Washington, D.C., so the autopsy could be uh, conducted there. Cyril Weck, who's a famous forensic scientist, who's been a big supporter of my book, said if out of the 60,000 autopsy reports he's ever read, it's the worst one he's ever seen. So now uh, J. Edgar Hoover has plugged a couple holes, but then he finds out Congress is going to investigate the JFK assassination, or the Texas Attorney General's going to, and he, is, he and his neighbor LBJ decide, wait a minute, we can't let that happen. If they get an investigation like that, we might look in, they might look into J, uh, to LBJ's uh, crazy things and illegal things he did with the oil industry. They might look into uh, J. Edgar Hoover's dirty laundry and all of that. Let's form a commission. So they get Earl Warren, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, to be the head of that. It becomes the Warren Commission. And Dorothy then kind of watches all this to see who's on the panel. The first one that really bothered her was if they're really looking for the truth, why in the world is Alan Dulles on the Warren Commission? Because he had been fired two years earlier by JFK based on the whole mess with the Cuban uh, rebels and all that kind of thing. What's he doing on there, she wonders. And then she looks at, uh, uh, wait a second, Gerald Ford's on there? And I found some uh, audio tapes of JFK, or of, uh, of uh, LBJ and uh, Hoover talking about who they want on the commission. And they said, well, we're going to put Jerry Ford on there because, uh, to use the cliche, he can't chew gum and talk at the same time. So they have him on there. And then, you know, it's interesting because Dorothy is, is, really thinks, hey, wait a minute, they, maybe they are legitimate because they put two senators on there. 
One was Senator John Sherman Cooper of Kentucky. The other was Senator Richard Russell of uh, Georgia. He was a Democrat. Cooper was a Republican. They were both really well thought of. In fact, Cooper was one of JFK's best friends. In Fighting for Justice, I have photographs of Cooper being at the White House, he and his wife with Jackie and JFK and all of that. So now we've got this Warren Commission, and they start their investigation. And Dorothy's watching closely what happens. And it was, in- it was interesting because, again, Hoover is controlling what is going to happen there. He has them all sign a code of silence that they will never talk about anything they learn with the hearings, the final report, nothing else like that. He's controlling that. And then the other thing that I found out was that uh, the investigation at the Warren Commission was really not conducted by the members. It was, contact- it was conducted by uh, the assistants, the, uh, the staff, and all of that. And how did I learn that? How did I miss all that? Because I didn't go ahead and research further as I should have done. Until last July, when I got a, a, an email from a gentleman named Morris Wolf. And Mr. Wolf said, Mr. Shaw, uh, I watched one of your presentations at the Allen Library outside of Dallas. And he said, I noticed there were 6 million views. In fact, there's 11 million views, my God, for all of my videos that I've uh, done on my presentations and interviews. He said, I noticed a name on there. The name was Dorothy Kilgallen. And he wrote in the email, you might want to call me because I knew Dorothy. Well, Frank, any time something like that happens, I mean, you're a curious person and a man of the truth, your ears perk up because so few people that I've ever found really knew Dorothy uh, way back in the, in the 1960s. And so I said, may I call you? And I did. And it was amazing because right away, he just, you know, he's a very quick talking man, and he just started unloading all this information. He said, I, I was a Yale graduate. And, and then I got to work for Bobby Kennedy. I was a professor suggested that. And I, when I first walked into RFK's office, there he was in his shirt sleeves and his tie was undone. And he, he was kind of uh, nodding a little bit when he got excited. I mean, these are clues to me that this guy legitimately was there. And so he tells me that he started working for Bobby Kennedy. And this is one thing he told me that probably shocked me as much as anything else. And I think it will you and your audience. And that is that he said, you know, they trusted me so much, JFK and RFK, that they had me as a go-between between between, uh, the president and the attorney general. And I would ride my bicycle between the attorney general's office, eight blocks to the White House, on my bicycle, I would, walk, I, would, I would ride there with packets of secret information uh, because I had a high security clearance. And you know why I did that, Mr. Shaw? Why they had me do that? Because they knew J. Edgar Hoover was tapping our phones. Now, you think about that, Frank, wow. the highest echelon of government, the, you know, the attorney general and the president are having to worry about the FBI director sure. uh, tapping their phones. So then he goes on and he says, you know, I work with, uh, he's such a, a, an impressive man. He, he goes on and tells me, you know, I worked with John Kennedy on the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I actually pretty much wrote Title II about all of the prejudice in the South and how, you know, we had to stop that with the Civil Rights Act, which was passed in 64. So he tells me about that. And then he says, well, here's the kicker, though. You're probably going to wonder how I knew Dorothy Kilgallen, but let me explain that. I want to say, yeah, give me that right away. But he said, I have to tell you how. And I said, what? He said, well, 
I was done working with Bobby Kennedy, but he suggested that I should be the legislative assistant for John Sherman Cooper, who had just been appointed to the Warren Commission. So I said, is that right? He said, yes. He was, he was such an impressive man, a man of integrity, very close friend with, with uh, the Coopers. In fact, uh, I used to go to parties at Senator Cooper's home at 29th and N Street in Georgetown, and, and I would you know converse with who was there, Jackie, and so on and so forth that way. And so, of course, right after the interview, I looked up uh, 29th and N Street, and that is where Cooper lived. So he said, well, I was there and everything, and... Uh, uh, you know, uh, at those uh, dinners, I sat right next to Dorothy Kilgallen, and I almost screamed. I thought, what? He said, yeah. Uh, she was a bright light bulb, and she was a good friend of Senator Cooper's, and he admired her a great deal, just as she admired him. And she would ask me all these questions about him and what was going on with you know, uh, him in Congress and all of that, and so I really got to know her well. And then I have to tell you, Mr. Shaw, that, uh, and Dorothy, I, I told about this, I, I ended up writing with him in my sob to the Warren Commission hearings. And I sat in the back row and I watched the uh, interviews with the witnesses, but Mr. Shaw, I didn't understand it because the, the, m- many of the members were never there. And I have corroboration that from, on that from Senator Cooper, that he was never even invited sometimes to, to interview those witnesses. And he said, I noticed the staff was doing it all. And, of course, that was Hoover again, um, you, know, uh, you know, going ahead and, and shutting the doors in terms and controlling those kind of people. And then he really hit me with the hard information that, that is amazing, and I want your audience to know about it. He said, you know, Senator Cooper, right from the start, really had trouble believing all of this Oswald alone material. And I'm just going to tell you a few of the things that he said to me. People can look at Fighting for Justice and read the, read the rest of it. But Cooper said, uh, the commission members already know about Jack Ruby's connection to organized crime, but they don't want to touch it. It's more than Oswald, but Hoover and Chief Justice Earl Warren keep pushing the Oswald alone uh, conclusion. Our president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, sure now wants to cover up the truth and move on. And uh, I'm very skeptical of the slipshod job being done by the commission staff and a rush to judgment and so on and so forth. And so he really was concerned that there was uh, corruption at the Warren Commission and he was letting um, uh, Morris know about it. And uh, and then, of course, she was letting uh, Dorothy Kilgallen know about some of that. So, uh, you know, and then the, the kicker was this one. Uh, uh, Cooper said, the inability to gather all evidence in certain areas as well as a number of suspicious circumstances deduced from the record made me preclude the conclusive determination that Oswald and Oswald alone, without the knowledge, encouragement, or assistance of any person, planned and perpetrated the assassination. In other words, he did not buy the Oswald alone uh, conclusion that the Warren Commission wanted to uh, have in, you know, have in the final report. So this is where I screwed up, Frank. I should have gone right ahead. That's in that's in, in fighting for justice and a little bit more about all that, the members and so on and forth, so forth. And and we'll get into that in a minute. Well, no, let's do it now because all right, let's look at why Hoover was was buttoning up the assassination with the Warren Commission. First of all, he's protecting himself. Second, he's protecting LBJ. Uh, uh, he's got uh, Alan Dulles on there to protect the, the CIA from investigation. Uh, Bobby Kennedy is no longer a s- attorney general. 
And so Katzenbach, the acting attorney general, Nicholas Katzenbach, is an assistant to the commission so he can protect the Kennedys from them looking into how they fixed the 60 election and Bobby Kennedy's complicity in Marilyn Monroe's death. So there's a job to be done by most of these uh, most of these people, well, most pretty much all of them, uh, were on, that were on the commission. So I should have looked more into that, and I didn't. But I, I, I'd had a, uh, Morris Wolf tell me about a memo that he had found uh, for me, and, and it said uh, this. Um, something strange is happening. Warren and Katzenbach know all about the FBI cover-up, and they are apparently and others planning to show Oswald the only one to be considered this is an antennial position. I, I must insist on an outside counsel. So this, I thought, was written by, uh, by Senator Cooper. But when I started to finally look, Mr. Dumbhead, I finally looked more into the Warren Commission. I decided to look at the oral histories of both Senator Cooper and Senator Russell. Cooper at uh, University of Kentucky, Russell at the University of Georgia. And what I found amazed me that Russell actually had written that memo, but then there was a memo in the in the uh, uh, Russell file that absolutely um, just I mean it, it made me so upset I was I was just furious at what what it said and here's what it said Richard Russell for, forced a final executive session of the Warren Commission his main agenda was to present his prepared dissent and to refuse to sign the commission report unless that dissent was included. After presenting his, his concerns, Russell was joined in the dissent by Senator John Sherman Cooper and, to a lesser extent, Representative Hale Boggs. In an oral history conducted late in his life, Senator Cooper recalled that Russell's well-reasoned opinions had great influence on Cooper's own conclusion. Like Russell, Cooper was impressed by the strong and compelling testimony of Governor Connolly and thus was willing to follow Russell's lead in rejecting the single bullet theory and the Oswald alone conclusion. So both men demanded in a meeting, this is the, 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 uh, the chronicle of that, September 18, 1964, six days before the final Warren Commission report was released, they have an executive session with all of the members there and the demand of Hoover and LBJ that this dissent uh, stating basically they didn't believe in the Oswald alone theory would be included in that particular document. They demanded it, and they were assured it would be in there. Well, when the final report was released, it was nowhere to be seen. And both uh, both Russell and, and Cooper were just as upset as, could, as it could be. And I, I wish we had a video tonight, because one of the things that Wolf, Morris Wolf told me was, Look at the photograph, and I'd, I'd suggest your listeners do so. Go on the Internet and look at the photograph of the Warren Commission giving the Warren uh, uh, Commission report to LBJ. And you'll see the players in there on the Warren Commission. Richard Russell is over to the left, Jerry Ford. There's Alan Dulles, and then there's Hale Boggs. And he said, look at where, where John Sherman Cooper is. And if you look at that, and it's on the cover of Fighting for Justice, you'll see that John Sherman Cooper is basically hiding behind Hale Boggs, and he's got the most disgusted look on his face because he has known now that that, that particular um, final report doesn't have any uh, information in there about the dissent. And then uh, I'm going to quit in a minute because I want your comments, Frank, but I'll tell you I even went further than that. I was able to find out, and this is where it's so... 
um, what what the Warren Commission did is uh, as close as you can come to a crime in terms of the manipulation of evidence. But in fact, uh, Senator Cooper and Senator Russell thought that they had um, that they had uh, uh, audio taped the the the, uh, the commission meeting on September 1864 because there was a woman in the room that they were told was a stenographer. Only later did Russell find out that she didn't record it, and she wasn't even a stenographer. So they had tricked them into believing that it was being recorded, that dissent. And the other thing that happened, the dissent document itself that they had, uh, you know, that they had uh, uh, created uh, disappeared, and basically what they did is destroy government documents. That's the length that J. Edgar Hoover and I believe LBJ went to to put a stop to all of this. It was going to be Oswald alone. That's what everybody was fed. The only person that didn't believe all that, in the media or anywhere else, frankly, was Dorothy Kilgallen, and we can talk about in a minute how that led to her death in 1965. Well, and uh, I hate to say this, Mark, but uh, and I appreciate such a comprehensive response there. We're almost out of time. I have two oh, questions. No, 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 it's okay. Please. Um, uh, this is this is great. I, I wish we had, you know, earmarked a full hour. I have two questions for you um, about this. One is understanding that this minority report, essentially, mm-hmm. didn't buy the Warren Commission report and uh, the mm-hmm. findings of Oswald acting alone and the single bullet theory. Was there a belief as to what possibly did happen how many yeah. shooters there were who was responsible even if they didn't believe the oswald acted alone theory was there an alternative theory well you're a smart man because you just hit on the most important part of of, of uh, what i said and that is that uh they closed everything off frank and so what happened is that there were there was no there were no other investigations because it was oswald alone that they thought Think about the devastating effect that that had on the assassination itself and John Kennedy getting justice and everything, because if, in fact, the dissent would have been in that final report, the Oswald alone uh, conclusion would have been debated. And there probably would have been investigations by the Texas Attorney General and the and the uh, and Congress. They would have looked into the mafia. They would have looked into the uh, the Cubans, the Russians, the uh, uh, you know the industrial complex. Uh, you know they would have a CIA. They would looked they would have looked into that. And so there would have been a comprehensive investigation, I believe. But because of what Hoover and and Johnson did to close all that out with the Oswald alone uh, situation. Now, Dorothy Kilgallen, as you know from our previous discussions, believed that it was Carlos Marcello who mm-hmm. had the, the mafioso, who had the greatest motive to kill JFK so Bobby Kennedy would be powerless and not come after Marcello and so on and so forth. She went to New Orleans. She had all this information about the dissent and everything. And basically, they silenced her in, in, uh, in, in uh, November 1965 stage death scene, no investigation, all of that and everything. But your, the, the, the question you ask is what everybody should ask. And this is what happened back then. And this is the relevance to today. Uh, we need to ask questions today, just like uh, they needed to back in 1963. Because, you know, uh, it's so important to do that. We can't take, especially when it comes to from the government, then and now, we can't take uh, their word for what they're saying, so people need to do their own research and ask those questions. 
My other question is to what you just alluded to, and if people are just tuning in, uh, we've been talking with Mark Shaw. I can't recommend his books highly enough. Uh, There's a lot of great content in each of them, I'm sure even the ones that I haven't read, but I can certainly speak to the reporter who knew too much, denial of justice and collateral damage. But um, so much of the interesting aspect of the reporter who knew too much, Mark, is the mysterious death of Mm -hmm. Dorothy Kilgallen. Tell me exactly how what we just discussed, the minority report on the Warren Commission, alternative theories about the assassination, how that led to Dorothy Kilgallen's death. Well, because I knew about the uh, dissent issue with the uh, with the Warren Commission, and, and that's in Fighting for Justice, the latest book, I was able to trail back, you see, to why the Warren Commission was fixed, why uh, J. Edgar Hoover and, and uh, Lyndon Johnson wanted only Oswald alone. Now, you've got Oswald, uh, supposedly, uh, although uh, his statement, I was a patsy, I think may be the only truth about the JFK assassination, but he shoots, uh, he shoots the president, supposedly, all right? Then they've got Ruby brought in as the murderer, and Melvin Belli makes him look crazy at the trial, and so his mouth is now closed in terms of the truth. They've got the Warren Commission that then closes off any possible other investigation at the time uh, other than Oswald alone. Well, who's the only loose end that they have? And that's this crazy woman. In Mm. fact, in some audio tapes I saw, Hoover called her the crazy columnist, the dirty columnist. I mean, she was the one going against the grain. She was the one that was standing up and saying, I don't believe in any of this. So as, uh, as, as she was uh, leaving the Ruby trial, she talked to Jack Ruby. He sent her to New Orleans. She investigated Marcello. She, she connected Oswald, Marcello, and, uh, and, um, and, and uh, you know, connected them with, with Oswald and Ruby. And then she was going to write this book for Random House. And if you're J. Edgar Hoover, you're saying, wait a minute, that can't happen. She's going to put all this material in there, what she knows and all that, and I'm going to be indicted, and Marcelo's going to be indicted. We can't let that happen. And I know we don't have much time, and you can read how that journey then ends up uh, peeling off into the fact that she goes to New Orleans, then she gets back to New York. She made a big mistake. She started being a blabbermouth. I'm going to solve the JFK assassination. I know who killed the president. I know who covered it up. All of this. She finally figured out that she's in danger because Hoover is watching what's going on. And she tells her hairdresser, if the wrong people knew what I know about the assassination, it would cost me my life. I've bought a gun and all of that. And so what happens then, in, and we, we, again, it, it's in, in the books, but there's a, there's a Judas who uh, kind of uh, betrays Dorothy and lets Hoover know exactly what she's going to put in the book. They set her up uh, for the kill. And finally, when she's found uh, in a bedroom she never slept in, uh, wearing her eyelashes, her hairpiece, and, and her makeup, uh, there's a stage death scene for, for sure. There's no investigation whatsoever. Uh, that's going to come out. But in the time between when they found Dorothy's body and when the police came, the FBI raided her apartment, her her townhouse in New York City, and stole her files. That's why I can't tell you what uh, Jack Ruby told Dorothy Kilgallen uh, at the Ruby trial, because that information was in those files. So if you think about this, then, Hoover has buttoned up all the holes now 
There's nobody that's going to uh, be a threat to him uh, in terms of exposing uh, his cover-up of the JFK assassination. Mark, on that note, uh, I appreciate the conversation very much. Uh, Let's schedule a full hour to flesh this out a bit more. Thank (laughs) you for the great work that you're doing. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much. And people can find me through my website and uh, markshawbooks.com. And I answer every single email, so uh, my address is there. Frank, you're a good man. Thank you so much. Thank you. I can't wait till we can chat again. If you have comments on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. Again, that's uh, 800-848-9222. The website, again, is markshawbooks.com. A lot of great content on there. We'll continue straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. singing pretty woman this is a birthday bumper music selection from my buddy joey falco joey falco uh and his wife cynthia are good friends and uh i actually went to italy with joey falco and joe piscopo and arthur idala among others a few years ago about four years ago and uh i had just gotten married a couple of weeks before and joey gave me as a wedding gift it was really just for me not my wife a bottle of Macallan 18. I'll tell you, that bottle of Macallan 18 was polished off in one night. Not just by me, but by uh, even Joe Piscopo, who rarely has a drink, had a drink with us as well. And uh, it was beginning the beginning of a wonderful friendship with, uh, with Joey Falco and his wife, uh, Cynthia, who is affectionately known as the Big Cat. And uh, my wife and I have... Uh, had dinner with them and hung out with them a bunch. So happy birthday, Joey Falco. And uh, hopefully all of your wishes come true today and always. All right. Those of you that are holding, we'll get to you after the top of the hour. We also have denunciations coming your way. No more guests. So we're going to have plenty of opportunity to chat about any of the issues that we've covered thus far. We'll get into it. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. 
Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.